UX Podcast Episode 113. Welcome to UX Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm James Royal Lawson. And I'm Pat Axbom. And we're balancing business, technology, and users every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. Today is the second of our um, shows recorded um, at Interact London 2015. And it's the second and final one. Uh, uh, did I just say that? You said, did you say the final one? Well, no, I said it's the second. Yeah, but second you, there might shows. be a third and a fourth oh. and a fifth. Oh, you're right. Yeah. They don't know that. No. I didn't think about that. Mm. It's our final show (laughs) from Interact London. And we have four interviews lined Mm -hmm. up for you. Um, Jim Kalbach, Vanessa Kirby, Sophia Hussain, and Craig Sullivan. We'll also be rounding up the conference by talking to two delegates. Yeah, that was fun. That we met. And Jim Kalbach, Mm. he is an author, amongst other things. He's he wrote one of my favourite books actually, um, one of the books I've read more than four chapters of, um, designing <laughs> designing web navigation. It's a few years old now, but it's um, it's excellent. Is that a compliment? You read more than four chapters God, of yeah. his book, and that's okay. really high praise, really. <laughs> um, he's also got a new book um, coming out, hasn't he? Yes, uh, something with mapping. Go pal. <laughs> oh, it's mapping experiences. There we go. It's coming out. Any any day now, actually, I think. Yeah, I think there's a the preview version of um, yeah. available already. Mm. Excellent. Let's uh, take off with him. We're sitting down with Jim Callback, uh, who just came off stage. He did an excellent talk on visualizing value. And I think this is a topic that has come up lately for us quite a lot. We've been talking about what are we really creating in this UX world? Mm -hmm. Are we actually creating something that creates societal value or are we just conversion optimizers trying to make money? Uh, And you tell us a bit about that. You started out with a quote with uh, Steve Jobs, but you actually went back in history Mm -hmm. from there. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think think UX and design uh, plays a lot of roles and I I think we can think about things at the kind of the micro interaction level and that's, that's great too. But I think as design becomes more and more important, it becomes a business differentiator, we also now just have, start, have to start to think about how do we, how do we conceive of UX at a, at, a, at a larger scale? And this isn't against anything that people have already been trying to do, but I think we need to step up because there, are, there is an expectation in business now that, that we're going to be contributing at that level. If you just look at Harvard Business Review, the cover of a recent issue was design thinking, right? design thinking being a strategic differentiator for companies. So how do we then engage, and not necessarily engage businesses with business speak, because they don't want to hear their own language. What they want to hear is, what does design have to say at that high level? So that's what I'm urging us to do, um, is to to think about how are we going to have these high level strategic conversations with, with, with businesses. And one of the ways that we do it is through visualizations, I believe, yeah. that we take a comp- complex, fuzzy topic like experience. You know, we talk about experience. Experience is hard to define, by the way. You know, we're in user experience, but like, what's the definition of an experience and when does it begin yeah. and end? It's a, it's a really, really big thing. And I think we have a kind of an intuitive understanding of that, but we need to help other people understand what an experience is and then what the value of that is. And I believe a key way that we do that is we visualize it. We take a snapshot of an experience that we observe in the real world and we create a diagram of it, a a picture of it, and that becomes then a diagnostic tool that we can take stakeholders through and say, here's what your customers are actually doing. Let's take a look at that. Okay, now let's figure out what the business needs to do from there. Yeah. And as, as, a, as a discipline, I think we, start, we need to start wearing that facilitator's hat yeah. and start being able to have those conversations. But the good news is we already have some tools that we can do that with. Right. I think we just need to reframe them a little bit and step them up in terms of their strategic importance and what the picture that they actually show back to the business. Well, yeah, you I call mean, those the alignment diagrams, alignment diagrams, which is your umbrella term yeah. for... Experience maps, yeah. customer journey maps. Yeah, I, I've done a lot of experience mapping and customer journey mapping, mental model diagrams. And it was actually in a, in one project. Um, I had just read Indy Young's book called um, Mental Models. Mental models, and yeah. I was doing. A, uh, I think what I built the project at w- as was a was a customer journey map project. 
and I started to question myself, why am I not doing a mental model diagram? Why am I doing a customer journey map? And why am I not doing a workflow diagram? And in my mind, I was kind of bouncing between all of these terms that were out there. And, and it really, I had this kind of moment where I said, oh, they're actually all just kind of really showing that value creation equation in different ways. Yeah. That there's different visualization techniques and different uh, norms within each of those methods. But really, what the, with the picture that we're trying to show back to the business at a high level is you have customers that you serve. They're expecting some value. You have operations and goals internally. How do we show a picture of how those two come together? So I came up with the term alignment diagrams, which again isn't a thing. It's not a method or a technique, and it's not uh, an artifact. It's just a term that groups all of them together. Yeah. Because I feel that we're we're kind of uh, talking by each other. You know, service designers latch on the service blueprint. Customer experience professionals latch on to customer journey maps, and I'm basically saying it actually doesn't matter what you call these no. things, just as long as you're capturing the picture that you want and then telling the story based on that yeah. picture. I, I really like the phrase yeah. alignment diagrams yeah. because yeah. it helps you focus on the fact that you're communicating yeah. a, an idea concept something to yeah. someone in particular. You're yeah. aligning this right. thinking right. yeah. to the other side, yeah. and and. Um, yeah, it, it's, it makes it much more obvious to you yeah. what you need to think about when you're working on it. Yeah. And there's actually two types of alignment that I talk about in my book. Um, and the one is um, the value alignment. And that's actually a visual alignment. Like th That's what this diagram does is it visually aligns things top and bottom or if it's a circle, you know, inside, outside. But you actually visually align the business to the outside world or to the customer or to the human condition. Right. But there's also an internal team alignment. Yeah. And that was the last point that I made about facilitation, that these, these are compelling artifacts that, that serve like campfires. Okay. Right? It's a way for us to go, hey team, and literally the whole team, sales, marketing, engineering, everybody, hey, let's, let's sit around this campfire and have a conversation about the customer, the experience, or value creation. So they become kind of a, a centripetal force that, that can bring people in. Uh, and again, the good news is, is it leverages our existing design skills, creating compelling documents, telling stories of, of user experience and things like that. But then we become the facilitator. Exactly. You said something during your talk that really struck a chord with me. You said that we always talk about how designers need to talk need to be able to learn to talk to business. Yeah. But instead, maybe we should look to teach the business people how to talk design. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I believe that's true yeah. because if design is a competitive differentiator, it can't just be a bolt-on thing yeah. where they, you know, ring up a UX designer and tick the box afterwards. You know, one order of usability. You know, <laughs> do you want do you want fries with that? You know, yeah. and, and, and you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna serve that up yeah. as as a check. We can't be a checkbox in their list. We have to we have to be at at that same strategic level if they are really saying that design is a differentiator. So that means. Um, I think as designers, we need to be able to understand their world a little bit better, but they need to be able to understand us as well, too. Yeah. And, um, you know, neither side is impenetrable either. If you read um, uh, business literature, in fact, to some degree, it's easier for us to, to read business literature and understand that than it is for them to read our stuff and understand it. So I think there's an education function that we need to have as a whole, as a field, I'm not saying that we're not doing this, but I think we need to step that up, and we actually need to start talking about design as a competitive differentiator yeah. and helping businesses understand design, not just us understanding business. And once we actually <laughs> teach people what UX is, then perhaps UX will disappear as a term. I don't know. I might, I might, I might, that might yeah. be uh, really extreme and polemic, but yeah. I think to some degree, the field of UX was formed out of a vacuum of, of managers at all at all levels, from product managers up to vice presidents, ignoring or not being concerned about that customer side of their equation. That they were, it's it's it was very. I mean, business models um, are very self-centered, and their attention was very very self-focused on short-term uh, profit maximization. And I think I think management management lost its its skill. In understanding, in understanding customers. That's not how it was in the 50s and no. 60s. If you go back and read uh, Theodore Levitt and, and Peter Drucker for that matter as well too, they talk about you know engage the customer, understand the customer, and I think management kind of lost that yeah. skill. And because they lost that skill, then we filled that gap. But what happens if management regains that skill? And I don't, I don't just mean the, the, the techniques, but yeah. it's actually in their DNA yeah. as a business. Yeah. Do we really need UX anymore as a, as a specialization? Mm. Maybe. 
but um, well, maybe, but, the, but maybe no. the job would be slightly different. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I think we've seen an, a, a long time where companies have focused very much on what they do yeah. and have lost sight completely about yeah. why they yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah. They've, they've lost the, 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 the value, <laughs> the, yeah. Yeah. The, what, the, what this problem they're actually solving for yeah. customers rather than just pushing out what we've got. Yeah. Um, so, so maybe UX doesn't vanish, but, it, but its role in that better world yeah change it slightly because you don't need to put so much effort into the into the communicating with the business side of things. You can work with the business side right. together. And, and, I, and I've had these very practical conversations with with developers, uh, you know, uh, and I, I would put that out there that we don't need UX after once everybody gets it. Once once any you know computing program, uh, uh, education program has UX part of it. When product managers have UX part of their training. Right, um, but I was talking to a product manager about it, and he said, "No, I still need my UX partner because they can do it better than me, and I have lots of other things to do too." So I think we need the business managers to understand the value of UX, but you'll probably still need that specialization yeah. of somebody else who can who can really kind of rally and, and ring fence all of those all of those customer concerns and, and and the interpretation of the qualitative research and those kinds of fuzzy things. Mm. I think will there still be a need for it? But but yeah. I do believe that UX was born out of a deficiency in management skills that shouldn't have been a deficiency in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. No, I think I think there's always going to be bridges to be built and for us to cross them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And hence our role as facilitators. Yes. I, I like that. That's a good that's yeah. a good theme to end on. Yeah. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Great being here. Second interview is with Vanessa Kirby. Um, Vanessa has created and managed a number of UX teams during her career. She's really experienced, started out in 93. Yeah, mm. uh, and uh, now she's back in the UK after a stint in Australia, and she's currently the head of UX at UK retailer Argos. And her talk was named Fables of UX. Yes. Welcome to the show, Vanessa Kirby. Thank you. Uh, you did the keynote this morning uh, with a talk entitled The Fables of UX. Uh, and you talked a bit about unicorns, <laughs> which we tend to talk a lot about in the UX world. <laughs> and uh, But you also uh, gave us some history around how this profession has developed over the years. Uh, you mentioned that when you worked with this, you didn't have, even have a mouse attached to yeah. a PC, yeah. uh, which is pretty cool. We were working in the trading rooms, but Reuters, Reuters worked out yeah. that they weren't as good as Bloomberg at doing trading screens. And so they built up a, a usability team. And... What they, the first virtual team I think I've ever worked on where they brought experts from all over the world. So we had Logica, we had our consultancy, but we had some internal Reuters people, but mainly and Microsoft, people like that all came in. So it was a whole conglomeration of all these talent that came into one place. Mm. We built these amazing labs, which I've never seen better labs since. Um, and that's where it kind of grew from. Wow. <laughs> that's what, mid-90s? No, uh, yes, 93, 94. Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> So we were just, when I first started with them, because actually I left them and came back, when I first started, that was when no mice on the table, mm. nothing like that, mm -hmm. disappeared off, uh, went off to another company, and when I came back, the interweb had hit, and mm. it was great, and off we went, and <laughs> everything was moving. We've not stopped since. Yeah. Um, how, um, the whole thing about UX unicorns, or, or unicorns, how do, you, um, how do you see that that has changed? In the, in the in recent times, really recent times? Uh, I think it's an interesting thing because having come back from Australia, there's a lot more there where people are multi-skilled. Mm. And I think one of the things, I was talking over lunch and just thinking, what I didn't say was, I'm not saying you can't be those things. I'm just saying you don't have to be those things. And I think mm. there are other areas to really delve into. I think there's so much now that you could look at. So maybe mm. maybe that's what's changed in the recent mm. years. Is previously, it really was just about, well, shall I do a bit of information architecture? Shall I do a bit of research? Shall I do some uh, coding and some visual design and I'll pull it all together? But now there are so many other areas to explore. Mm. It's kind of like you can go deeper and deeper within your area of expertise. Yeah. There's just way more to be exploring. Mm. So you found that companies are, are asking for unicorns less now? Oh, no, that's a different thing. So mm. it's interesting. No, I don't think they are. And I think yeah. there's still that thing of... It's a little bit yeah. like I said in the in the presentation. Yeah. I think there, there are companies out there who just don't know what it is that they want, but mm. they know they need it. And all they know probably is that they haven't got much budget for it. Mm. So they'll try and get one person to do everything. Yeah. 
as opposed to saying, actually, let's get the right people to do it. It is very hard as well when you're doing a UX project, depending on how big it is. If it's not particularly big, you don't need someone 100% of the time. So you never need a copywriter 100% of the time. So then you have to work out, okay, do I get somebody to do the copywriting who can also do a bit of research and a bit of this and a bit of that? Mm -hmm. Or do you work out how you can get an ad hoc copywriter to come in 20% of the time? And how do you and, and do you make sure that you've got someone on your team that knows when you need the copywriter to come in? Exactly. Mm. Or yeah. the SEO guy, or the accessibility guy, yeah. or the coder. Um, so that's yeah. You do. You need to. You need to. So I suppose that's what my job is: is to make sure I've got all the juggly bits in place, yeah. and mm. we can make sure we've got the right people. There's a lot of movement in my team, so it might be that one stream needs something more than another, and I tend to flip flop people around. There's a, there's definitely a. You've got to have. I think successful UXs really are able to flip-flop in and out to different things and be able to put it onto different streams and do mm. different things. And it makes life a bit more exciting. Mm. Mm. We tend to say that at least you have to be aware of front-end development and the limitations there. Yeah. Uh, although you may not actually have to be a coder uh, to be a successful UXer. Yeah. Uh, it's something we've talked a lot about on the show is you, the expectancy of you as a UXer to have all, the, all this competence is so high that people are getting imposter syndrome. <laughs> uh, mm. And uh, I, I like the question that you asked, actually. So when are people expected to get their work done if they're supposed to learn all mm. this stuff all <laughs> the time and always be on top of what's happening in the world and on top of technology and uh, research and analytics and... Uh, and coding, I mean, yeah. it's, it's impossible. Yeah, it is. Mm. And, and, mm. and that's why I think mm. you because mm. it is interesting, isn't it? Mm. It's a little bit to like, the, do you do a mm. linear problem mm. or do you do a curly problem? Mm. Well, if you're doing curly mm. problems, it does make you happier and you're mm. doing all these different things. But at the end of the day, how many of those curly problems can you do mm. in one day? And you've yeah. got to work out where you want to focus your curls. Focus <laughs> <laughs> your curls, yeah. There we go. <laughs> but I think the, the, the fact that many UXers or many people in our branch are very, are very aware of the situation, I mean, the whole the whole essence. Of what we do is being aware of situations and mm. context and, and what people need and so on. So, so you're aware that there's so many elements to what we do. Yeah. Mm. And then if you if then that builds up then the, the the need or the feeling that you need to do them all. Yeah. So you end up having that personal aspiration that you're going to be a unicorn because you need to be unicorn. Failure. Oh, or or you're failure. failure. Or you're going to fail the UX the experience. What should I do? How mm. do I do it? Mm. I've had lots of conversations. Lots of people come up to me afterwards <coughs> and sort of said. So I'm kind of doing this, and I can't. And you know, what you said made sense. So how do mm. I get around? And actually, unfortunately, that's where I don't really have a bit of a solution for things. Because mm. one of the one of the big problems is a visual designer has generally done a degree in some kind of design. Copywriters generally done media mm. and journalism. Coders generally done something codey somewhere, whether it's back end or front yeah. end. Mm. Um, but your information architect is very rarely coming from an information library background. Um, mm. James Kalbach did library sciences mm. so he comes from that informational but it's a different thing as mm. well that's taxonomies and stuff like yeah. that whole different world um i came from usability and research but i also came from a, a coding background now i am well known utterly rubbish at coding but that was mm. back in coding mm. you know that's even i could mm. just about do visual basic mm. but mm. once i got into c and i'm that old it was c it didn't have a plus or a sharp or a whatever in front <laughs> of it mm. um <laughs> that was when I said, oh, goodbye, see you later. <laughs> I'll yeah. go and help people and processes and forget the technology for now. Um, yeah, so... And that's okay, <laughs> which is good. Yeah, uh, yeah that's okay, because <laughs> you, you've got that awareness. No, you strengths. You don't need to do it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And now you're more the enabler and facilitator. Yes, I'm lucky yeah. now. I, I think, I, 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 honestly, I just think it's amazing. I've just been in the right place at the right time. I think I just happened to get on the crest of a wave as it was starting. Mm. And because I was young enough, I could get around the world and do things. And I've just been, just been exposed to so many different places mm. and so many different things that I've done. It. I'm, I'm, mm. I'd love to tell you that I'm a career-driven, goal-aspirational, mm. totally no, I haven't got a bloody clue what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> you had a historical tidbit that I <laughs> really loved. You said uh, the fr Florida ele presidential election ballot problem <laughs> in, back in 2000 was a godsend for people because those of us trying to sell disabilities suddenly had something to tell people look at what can happen you can if destroy the world if it's if it's bad yeah <laughs> if it's all laid out yeah. badly yes mm. <laughs> um well i was gonna have one more question uh, maybe i can do that quickly before everyone starts streaming yeah, everyone's yeah. coming in um, the auditorium <laughs> now you, you you're um, you're currently the head of the ux team at um, argos here in the uk yes I think you said that they, they didn't have a UX team at all 18 months ago. Not that was before your time, as yes. I understand it. Yes. But what was the, what was the, the, the light bulb moment for, for Argos? What, what made that happen 18 months ago? I think 
it, it was a gradual progression of things. So they had people in place who were doing some of the things that you see happening today. Because obviously they've always put the content up on the website. Mm. They've always had the stuff up there. Um, they brought in a new innovation team and the head of innovation there, uh, Neil Tyngate, he basically then said, hang on, you need a user experience team. So it's more that he formalized it. So things were happening yeah. and now it was more formalized. So then it was just like, and they, you know, they've got through where they're going and that mm. sort of thing. And I'm, I'm just a little bit more structured in the way that I do things, a little bit more, I, again, it's just age and I've got loads of things behind me that can help out with that. So I can, I can come in and sort of say, actually, I know how we can do this. I've kind of done this before. So yeah. let's give this a go. Let's see where we're going mm. with this. So, yeah. you know, it's right, that so kind of thing. Yeah, so it's natural, uh, more like an organic um, maturity. Yes, uh, and I think they just hit a point where they said, hang on, maybe we need someone who's done this somewhere mm. else to come in and help out mm, yeah. um, and it's uh, the energy in that company mm. is amazing it's fantastic yeah. it's a great place for UXers wow. it's a yeah whether yeah. you look at the digital work they've been doing yeah. look at the stores look at the you know we've got everything now from the all, so many mobile apps and so many things online mm. and the digital store and everything so mm. it's mm. a UX dream really excellent <laughs> fantastic okay well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us my thank pleasure you, thank Thanks you Next up is Sophia Hussein, uh, whose talk was named Beyond the Buzz, Demystifying Ecosystem Thinking. And she's an interaction and service designer at Finn right, um, in Norway. And what is Finn, James? Well, it's basically, it's Craigslist or Gumtree or Blockit, depending whether you're American, British or Swedish, uh, but in Norway. Okay, cool. A classified list, classified advert site. And so uh, Sophia has done some really interesting research, and uh, let's listen to her now. Sophia Hussein, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, you did a great talk earlier today about demystifying ecosystem thinking, uh, where you gave us lots of examples about uh, what ecosystem thinking is mm -hmm. and uh, strategies for that. And building, that's what really appealed to me with your talk, was you were talking about building one user journey upon another. So the mm -hmm. end of one user journey, user journey is actually the beginning of another user journey. So you build those on top of each other. And by doing that and extending your business outside the normal core business, you can actually create new, new experiences for users. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, you're <laughs> spot on. Okay. It's very, I mean, it's easy to talk about it, but it's very hard to craft journeys like this. Yeah. And not just annoy the users because, I mean, people see through advertisement. It's mm -hmm. very easy to say, hey, come take a loan from us instead of going to other, other banks or insurance companies. But why would you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because to give a little bit of background there, you work with... Um, um, a classified ads yes. service mm -hmm. in Norway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what was the problem? Well, the, the problem picture, or what was the situation you found yourselves in? Well, we see that uh, as competitors are growing, we need to do something new to keep our users and uh, make them engage with us for a mm -hmm. longer time. And we have several companies within many different domains, and we should take more advantage of that yeah. by also helping the users. So we know that when users come to look at house listings, they probably also need a mortgage. Mm. When mm. they look for vehicles, maybe they're in interested in buying a, um, uh, buying insurance, car insurance. Mm -hmm. So we can always uh, help users go through our ecosystem in a more seamless journey. Right. So the ecosystem, in the sense, you've 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 taken what would be traditionally the 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 kind of um, go-to thing that is your product, and then you've you've observed um, your customers and their behaviour and their their broader needs and picture. Yes. So the example I used in my talk, and I tend to use that example because it's so illustrative, that when you're looking for a home, there's just so many things you have to do, mm. getting settled into a home new home is like many months it's a long process mm. and we treat it only as not but we know that people use our site also for finding new furniture for uh, investigating the neighborhood mm -hmm. there are many other things that people do seek uh, craftsmen plumbers el electricians and so on mm. and they do it all on our site but we don't connect these services and we don't help the user so it's all it's all 
traditionally seen as just individual happenings. Yes, we all have always treated our categories as separate domains. Mm. And yeah, you mentioned finding the user's real goal. Uh, yes. So that uh, the intention of the user really isn't to buy the house, but actually to get settled in the house and in the community. That so is that really is, yeah. the core of ecosystem thinking, mm -hmm. that we have to analyze the real goal of the users, mm. the greater goal that you're w wanting to accomplish. Right. Only then can we m build these meaningful pathways. Mm. Yeah, because you would only then start to see the, 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 the fuller picture and the, and the overall journey that they're traveling through instead yeah. of just the individual happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talk. You talked about creating new pathways across services, but if you're a business, uh, you're telling people to do <laughs> do stuff that is outside their business. How do you get confidence in doing that? Are you talking about the car example? Yeah, now? well, or all or the examples because your 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 uh, strategy for it all was understanding understanding how it works now, then creating new pathways, and then creating the business strategy mm -hmm. and the business model. So, in the mm -hmm. first case study mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. the housing. We actually had many of these services. Oh, you did? Okay. And that's mm. a bit the special thing about mm. Shipstead, that we have so many companies. Right. Mm. Whereas the car example mm. is quite different, because then we're talking about services that, that are far beyond what we do. Mm. And of course, then it all becomes all about strategic partnerships. Mm -hmm. And that's why I couldn't have done this project alone as a designer because then it would, would be just like a future scenario. Mm -hmm. But we had a team with uh, very skilled business analysis and business people who, who craft this service looking at what are really the possibilities out in the market. Right. Mm. So, yeah, so, so, yeah, so you've uncovered new business opportunities, so growing the ecosystem yes. based on, what, on, on having a better understanding of, of mm -hmm. what's happening now with mm -hmm. the existing products and offering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what you're saying about creating partnerships, I really like that mm. because th that, that means you don't have to create your own new services, but actually you just need to, uh, I don't know, find get, them, get, find find them, and, mm. and uh, actually satisfy the needs of the customer. But maybe it's not just your services what that, that are doing that; it's just other people's services. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, being in mm. a corporation like mm. Shipstead, we have many companies, but. In most other cases, you wouldn't. Mm. And then it's all about how can you create win-win situ situations, synergies mm. between mm. different businesses. Yeah. Yeah. How can you team up with others? Mm. Yeah. And the time to market is shortened drastically mm. as well. Because instead, mm. of, instead of getting well, the investment in place to start up a new arm of your, your, your existing organization, mm. you set up a strategic partnership with someone who's already doing it and tie it in with the knowledge that you've learned. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you, Sophia, for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Time for a Craig Sullivan. Craig Sullivan, yet yeah. Optimize or die on Twitter. It's his fourth time on UX Podcast. Fourth time. I, I'm a bit unclear about it in the interview because I can't exactly remember if it's yeah. three or four or five. Um, yeah. But it's actually four. He joined us on episode 11, mm. three and a half years ago. Episode 26, three mm. years ago. And then episode 56, two years ago and now episode 113 right and always so much fun to talk to he is his talk was scaling stupidity scaling stupidity yes. scaling stupidity mm. <laughs> um and we we spin off that presentation yeah he cursed a lot in his talk and i probably should warn you that he probably does right now as well it's been a little while but we're joined again um, by Craig Sullivan, who um, is he's now taking back his record as uh, the most frequent guest on the um, podcast. I That's believe. true. It was holding it jointly for a little while now. But how now many is it? I haven't been um, count. Is this the f <laughs> fourth or fifth time? Ooh, Do you know? I did my research. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Where's the quant One, data? Two, yeah. three. I think this is the fourth time you've been on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Too small a sample. It's yeah. up to like <laughs> 250. Small. I'll either die. Your standard or answer is too we'll small a sample. 250 yeah. to. Uh, <laughs> so this I'll is meaningless until we go through another 247 <laughs> appearances so. of Craig on the UX podcast. No. <laughs> so there's really nobody who can call out bad processes and bad testing like Craig Sullivan. I think uh, you do a fantastic job of presenting and making it fun to learn, but also ah, cringing at some of the stuff that you realize you're doing wrong and you're just testing stuff because somebody told you to test, but you're not, haven't done the research. 
And? I said, bullshit, bullshit data leading yeah. to bullshit metrics, leading to bullshit reports, mm. leading to bullshit dashboards. And mm. Well, the, 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 the bullshit flow one is very interesting um, uh, because, you know, fundamentally a lot of people are uh, look at their analytics data and say that is the view of the world. But it's an abstraction. It's, it's Google's attempt to give you a you know, a rough guide to what's going on. A classic example here is, you know, uh, the bounce rate on your page. So I was looking at a site recently where they have this slider on the page. It's a financial product. So they calculated their bounce rate as all the people who saw a single page. But what about the people who came and looked at the slider, you know? And so there's this kind of missing data layer that's often not there. And retailers get it, you know? When they set up their tills, the tills are architected to provide a flow of information up that uh, collects all the stuff that's really useful, like how many gift certificates, uh, what refunds did we give customers, what sales of goods did we have, did they pay by card or cash, you know, how much money should be in the till. All of these kind of things are absolutely critical for retailers, yet a lot of websites are not running their setups with that same uh, degree of you know sort of certainty about what it is that they're recording. So, uh, and it's just clearly lack of investment. So, uh, flying blind without the right data is actually a common problem, and most people assume that data is right. Hey, it's Google Analytics; it mm. must be correct, uh, and that's an assumption that needs to be challenged. Do you think you can pin it all down to lack of investment? Um, okay, time's money, so I suppose you can. I was thinking, uh, can't we say it's, it's ignorance as well? Yeah, there's various factors here. I mean, sometimes. People assume with technology tools, whether it's form analytics or whether it's Google Analytics or anything else, that you just buy it and mm. put it in and that's it. Uh, and I guess that it would be like saying, if you want a dog, well, you just buy it and then it's there. But you have to feed the dog, right? The dog's going to need walks. The dog's going to need bathes so it doesn't stink. And, you know, you're... You, there's, there's a life here of your product. So if you're installing Google Analytics, yes, it may be free, but that does not mean it is free of all maintenance, absolutely. Yeah. And if you take the same approach with your car, then the wheels will go bald, it will seize because it doesn't have enough oil in it. Um, these products need maintenance, they need to be set up correctly so they're not unsafe, you know, from the point of view of the organization making decisions about it. Um, but they need love, right? That is the main thing that's missing. Just give some love to your analytics, and from that love, you'll see what retailers get by making their tills add up correctly. It's, it's important in retail. They wouldn't be able to survive without it, and people would get killed if that data wasn't flowing through. So we really should be taking the same approach with analytics. It's actually the core and fundamental underpinning of your business and all your testing and everything else. Yeah, and I know me and you have talked about this before, that my, my experience is yours, that every analytics setup is, is a bit screwed up. It's broken. I yes. mean, you've, you've got to invest the time into working out just how it is. It's just a question up. of where. Because no one knows. No one realizes it when you come, in, you come into a project and you've got to find the answers. So although that seems quite sad, uh, if you turn it around, there's an opportunity there. Yes, so yes. If, you, if you do it correctly, you're way ahead of the competition, really. Yeah. Well, you're yeah. making better insights. You're making, you're making more sound mm. um, decisions based on better insights mm. uh, as opposed to just random stuff based on broken data. But how do you get people to understand they're doing it wrong? I think the, the, there's, an e the, the, there's an easy way, which is to point out that everybody really needs to check that the collection is working in the same ways uh, that we would calibrate the tills and the reporting in a retail environment. We need to also calibrate and... Um, uh, calibrate and make sure Google Analytics or any other analytics package is set up correctly to record the things that we actually need to know about people's behavior. Once it is set up correctly, then a lot of useful data flows from there. But back to your earlier point on, on the kind of testing and calling out bad stuff, I think it's really important for me to mention that the only reason that I'm uh, okay at kind of calling this stuff out and, and, and talking about the problems that happen is because I've made every single one of these mistakes myself. Mm -hmm. I was showing someone a photo the other day. I should have put it in the slide deck today. 
I was getting people to use their fingers to point at call to action buttons and testing. Mm. It was really stupid. It looked horrible. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it looked awful and it didn't work. And I, I spent a lot of time doing really stupid testing in the wrong places with the wrong stuff. And through all that, I learned a lot. You know, it kind of trashed my ego <laughs> and my assumptions about how good I was at actually picking a winning design. Mm. And that's the humility that testing taught me, which is, do you know what? I don't know which thing is going to work yeah. here, but what I can do is I can do my research, I can find out as much as mm -hmm. I can, mm -hmm. and put myself in the best possible chance of coming up with a hypothesis mm -hmm. that's likely to actually work mm -hmm. when I run it as a test. And that's why that prep works important. But it all starts from you don't know. So, that, yes. And that mm. is something uh, and There are no experts. There aren't any UX guys I know or AB testing guys that I know that can look at tests and say, this one will win. Mm -hmm. In fact... You know, my guess rate, you know, I might get maybe 60% right, but I'm, I'm marginally better than flipping a coin as a predictor mm. of your future business. I mean, I'm not really selling my consultancy services very well there, but it's a bit like a, it's a, bit like a car mechanic. You know, a car, I, I have experiential learning. I, can, uh, I can't look at a car and say, oh, I know exactly where there's something wrong, but the tools and techniques that I have to drill down into and isolate the problem and then prove that that mm. is actually the problem, then remove it and then validate that the problem has gone, those are the things that you learn over time. That experiential learning goes along with the tools, but it still doesn't mean, even a mechanic with 20 years experience can't just look at your car and decide what's wrong with it. You have to go through this diagnostic process of collecting evidence, trying things out, maybe getting it wrong, and then eventually hitting the muddle load and figuring it out. And mm. you know, it, it, it's similar with cars as it is to doing conversion optimization. So if you meet someone who says they're an expert at this and the, all their tests win, then they're liars, mm. basically. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, this, is, this is something that, I mean, okay, with cars and mechanics, maybe they've got it a little bit easier in that there's a, there's a slightly more limited selection of cars. Yes. So you, you, your world is slightly shrunken. With us, every single digital product or website, whatever, yeah. is unique. The customer base combined with that is unique. Mm. But we're in a situation where clients, clients expect you as an optimizer or as a, as a UX or whatever. I mean, you know what menu to put in in this situation. You know how, how this should be in this perceived situation. And it's not true. We, like you said, we've got we've got our baggage with us, our baggage of experience. But we still need to hypothesise and to to, mm. to be honest about the fact that no, we're we're just guessing, right? And yes. and I'm, you're paying me to make a really good guess, and I'll try and make as best a guess as I can. But don't just trust me. You've got to go out there and, and yeah. test. You've it. got to validate it. You know, you you've got to collect the data, you know, a, a hypothesis is just a, a, an informed guess. And you're saying, well, you know, based on all the stuff we've looked at, the observations, the data, you know, we think that by doing this, it doesn't, it doesn't guarantee, there are no guarantees here. Um, you design a test, it doesn't guarantee that it will actually be successful. But a lot of people focus on the kind of monetary things here. Those are mm. really less important than the information you learn. So mm. if you learn, for example, that you are making it really hard for people to work out what your delivery charges are and you know that you can improve that by making those really clear up front. Mm. You've learned a really important piece of information that's now valuable to be shared within the business, which is, do you know what? If we are not clear about our upfront delivery costs and, and where the threshold is for free delivery, then people will buy huge amounts less stuff from us, right? Once you have that knowledge widely shared within the business mm. that's come from the testing, that's intellectual property you're building about your product, mm. your growth, your customers, your IT setup. Mm. And to hark back to your point, every single company is different, like a fingerprint. Mm. So no one approach or methodology for CRO or AB testing is going to work. It's your, the intersection of your customers, their heads, your product, your IT setup, your baggage, the way things work, the data that you collect. And those are going to be different every single time. But a lot of the approaches to figuring out what to do with that information, they're timeless. And it all comes back to figuring out what's in people's heads when they are trying to accomplish something using your product. Mm. And that is where all the action is. So asking them questions, observing their behavior, measuring what they do online on your site, whether it's a, a prototype, a pilot, or the actual live product mm. itself. All of these things are timeless techniques that will help you get away from this idea that we're making loads of product changes, but we never kind of know, did that work? 
those 20 things we tried in version 2 of the product that we launched, mm. did anyone use them? Uh, which ones can we throw away? No one ever asked that question. That's the least asked question. <laughs> what can we throw away? What can we take off this page? <laughs> what piece of crud that we put on here three years ago that nobody mm. actually uses, that we've never bothered mm. to measure, can we safely take off here, right? Uh, so uh, cleaning people, out your house. I, I call yeah. it the Christmas tree. It's like, this yeah. Christmas, how mm. to do web design in mm. your house mm. is invite all of your neighbours to bring all of their Christmas decorations mm. around and put them on your tree, mm. right? And eventually you won't see the tree because there will be so many decorations. Mm. And web pages kind of get like that. We put stuff on, but no, uh, I hardly ever see people taking things off, you know? Mm. And people are so sentimental about this. That, yeah. that they they oh, I really like that. really I mean but I because they see I suppose they see I have an their emotional investment uh, in that widget their time mm. the, thri- <laughs> the three years they've lived with that widget on the right or hand even corner a monetary investment yeah we built yeah. it and it costs a lot of money we can't just take it, it away must make it, it which becomes pride yeah exactly because, you know, but this is one of the yeah. inherent biases one of the cognitive mm-hmm. biases that drives a lot of flaws in the testing and those biases are there whether you have a testing tool or not so. You know, somebody with a testing tool is capable of uh, of driving the decision making in their business in an A/B testing kind of way, but using their ego as the source of all the ideas for the test. And mm. it's the same way as doing ego-driven design, where you know the CEO decides on what's going to go on the page rather than the customers and the design team working as a collaborative kind of unit. And that's the fundamental problem. You know, we we need to get ego out of design. Ego mm. assumptions, cherished notions. I have 20 years experience in marketing. I know mm. what our customers want. This works on this other site, so we're going to do it. Or I've decided. I know what they want. All of these are conceit, arrogance, and they're cover for the, for the fact that knowing away inside your heart, there is a little mm. voice going, you don't actually know. <laughs> you really don't know, do you? <laughs> Go on, say it. Just tell them. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. And there's that little voice of doubt. Which we'll call Little Craig. Everybody (laughs) blusters and goes, yeah, no, let's try that. Yeah, all the rest of it. And there's still that bit inside of them that's saying, you know, this is all wrong, you know? And that's the fundamental problem. We we need to listen to that doubt and embrace it, embrace the fear of making wrong decisions, embrace the doubt that we might not be right, and embrace the fact that our opinion and knowledge may not be the information that we need for here. The best quote that I ever heard was, somebody once said to me, do you know what, your opinion about the product and whether you like it or not, really makes no material difference to the performance of the product. So whether you like this color or that layer or that design, it's not for you, it's for them. And it needs to be built around them, their needs, their desires, their fears, worries and barriers, because if it is for you, that's great. You're doing ego-driven design. This is my website, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's my personal sandpit. If you have that approach, you will not survive in retail and you certainly will not survive online because you're designing for yourself and that's a very small market of yeah. one. Excellent. Wow. I think Thank we'll, we'll finish on that and say <laughs> everyone needs to, to listen to their, their little Craig on their shoulder. Yeah, I'm going to start listening to the voices in my head. Well, that too. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Craig. Thanks. <laughs> To wrap things up, straight after the end of day two, mm-hmm. we um, hung, hung around outside and grabbed hold of two delegates from the conference. To help us sum up Interact London 2015. And reflect on what we listened to and learned mm. during the, um, the two full days mm. of, of speakers. We were joined by Sophie Exentarius and uh, Maurice Roach. Yeah. Um, Sophie is a freelance UXer and Maurice is... Well, a coder. Which is always cool that coders come to UX conferences as well. End of day, end of end conference. Of, end of day two, yeah, end of yeah. conference. Uh, it's really, really tiring, uh, but also inspiring, as always. Uh, we're standing here with two delegates, mm-hmm. uh, Sophie and Maurice. Yep. Where are you guys from? Um, I'm originally from Barbados. I live in London now. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, I work at... A company called Zolka, a UX engineer for them. Zolka, okay. And Sophie? I'm originally Greek. I lived in Canada for a long time, which is why I sound funny. And I'm a UX architect. <laughs> I've been in London for nine years. You yeah. don't sound funny. <laughs> I am told I sound funny. <laughs> so, so Different, yeah. unpinnable. So, and you've both been here for, um, for the two days. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, did you have any expectations going into the conference? What you might get from it? This Not is one possibly. Of I went last year and it was good fun and it was nice to see all the projects that people were doing around the industry. So I thought, hey, I'll come again. All right. Oh, yeah. This is actually so. my first uh, UX conference. I usually go to, I'm more of a, a coder in my sort of, my history has been more of an engineer. So this is my first UX conference and I, I just wanted to, to learn and to see what the industry was doing around me. Really. So, yeah. Because like, it's one of these things that Per often asks us, asks me when we're traveling to these um, events outside of Sweden anywhere. Mm. Per quite often asks us, like, what, what are your expectations? Jim? What are you expecting to get from this? Um, and I, I'm terrible at thinking about this before the events. But there's also uh. like a model you can use uh, after attending a conference like this. Uh, what will I start doing? What will I stop doing? And what will I keep doing? Oh. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, are there any of those that would it comes to mind? It's something that you might change at work. Um, I guess it de well from the, the last um, speaker was very good about mindfulness so I think I will try to be more mindful so that's something I will start yeah. to do what I'll continue to do is I'm going to continue to do the um, mapping and diagramming which I thought was a very um, sort of interesting yeah. talk and I'm going to stop being so self-judgmental and just sort of get on with it I think that sort of seems to have been the constant theme is people who everyone has just said just keep iterating and keep improving, don't dwell. So I think that'll be my, that's my takeaway. Yeah, nice thoughts, yeah. I like that. Well, I've only been at this current job for about six weeks, and I'm trying to share more drawings and put maps on the board so everyone can see them so the developing team does know what it is that we're striving for. And I was reminded, we don't actually have personas. <laughs> I'll be sticking some up. Yeah. I need to oh, make yeah. more maps of, funnily enough, the ecosystem that the company operates in. Mm. It's a new industry for me. They don't know all the things that they have. Mm. I need to draw it out for them. Mm. I'm the one who likes architect hanging around in there. Mm. Um, things to stop to do. It's funny that you mentioned the um, mindfulness bit. <laughs> Mine is stop myself reacting. I'm Mediterranean. Yeah. I react. <laughs> it's quite a reaction on occasion. <laughs> so taking a step back, listening to the voice and just going, mm. stop it. <laughs> yeah, Steve Portico's talk now actually yeah. seemed to have a huge impression on a lot of people. My, my favorite yeah. one was the bouncy guy. Um, yellow shirt, Craig, stupidity Craig testing. Yes. Yeah. He wasn't reading. He knew how to present. He was making really good points. Yeah. It's like, yeah. know what you want to test, validate it, yeah. Yeah. go with it, understand, iterate, yeah. and he's, testing he's is part of the design. stuff that are on our minds, but we don't really, we're afraid to say it, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I do like a little bit of good swearing in a presentation. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it just. <laughs> I liked, um, yeah, again, how much um, um, brain stuff is coming up in these conferences. Yes. Mm. And we've, we've noticed a, a, a growing theme of this, that um, UXs are becoming much more well, mindful, uh, of, or at least they're, they're much more aware of, of this stuff. It's not just about these kind of interactions and, and designs and stuff we're, we're drawing on boards and stuff. We're, there's a lot more going on. And, mm. and um, several speakers talked about um, brain-related things. Um, not just <laughs> the obvious one with the neuroscientists, but also yeah. uh, we had Hippocampus um, yeah. mentioning one. We had um, 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 Jane Frost yesterday as well was um, was talking about research, but she was she was talking about uh, there was those things that which she said in her talk, which were also connected to our psychology about like you know users people do what they they do so yeah. to um, contradict the data mm -hmm. and you know, there, was, there was lots of psychology in, in in what she was talking about, and we had Brand as well came up. Um, I, loved, I loved the cards about mapping the experiences. Yeah, that was very good. Yeah. Keeping them as reminders. But I think as UXers, we're kind of privileged because we get to see all aspects. Mm. Yeah. You get to think from the perspective of the yeah. user and the business and the technology. So you're one of the few people in a company who does get to step away far enough mm. yeah. that you can see that there's brand going on. There's different messages. You end up being very good friends with marketing on occasion. Mm. Yeah. And that's, ex that's an excellent point because that ties into the very, very first talk yesterday when um, Vanessa um, Kirby. Talk, yeah, Kirby. talked yeah, about yeah. unicorns. And what you're saying is that um, we have this kind of vision, we can have this wide vision and we can notice things and we can take things in. But at the same time, you have to have the mindfulness and the sense of being to, to step back and, and understand that you can't do it all. Mm -hmm. You can't be an absolute you know, uh, world best in all these different things, but you can be aware that they're doing and you can then pulling colleagues or explain it to colleagues this is what I've realized can you 
can you code it? Can you do it? Can you and design it? I think it? it's can really, really it? important if you do notice something, if you do see something, to speak up because yeah. it might be that others have just had their nose way too close to the glass and just can't see it anymore. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I really like Vanessa's conclusion about UX people being facilitators, and that's yeah. what, really what we're doing. We don't need to know all the stuff. We just need to know what has to be done to get the to, be, to create a perfect solution. Really. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this does. I mean, you then have ecosystem in multiple contexts: the ecosystem of the project team, the ecosystem of the client organization, the the wider ecosystem of the of the environment in which the solution is being deployed, and the ecosystem of self. Like, how are we feeling about ourselves and our internal monologue? And this seems like that has been this theme. And um, it's you know the the idea of the fact that UXers should be almost working on their own obsolescence. We should become we should become background. We should become we are just this gel that works through everything, and that is what mm -hmm. we are. Yeah. I guess that's sort of I mean, it sounds a bit weird to say that about one's own profession, but I guess that is the truth. We really need to, we pull it all together. We hold it all together. We help everyone communicate, and we really should be working to make ourselves more invisible in the process and just enabling all the other people to get the job done. Yeah, uh, but sometimes you've got to play translator and interpreter. This is the thing. Oh yeah, this and, is the and thing. mediator and diplomat and just and kind of yes, massaging all the situation. And and coffee boy and chief whip <laughs> and everything else. But drinking it, buddy. It, drinking buddy. Yes. But it, but it's but you know but it's you gonna need, be okay. It's gonna be. <laughs> but it's it's it's. I think our role. Um, I guess obviously it's a UX conference, so we come out with this very big sense of self and purpose but I do think that our role in projects going forward can be understated like to be good UXers we do have to be aware of the broad strokes and we do have to be aware mm -hmm. of the width of what we're doing but we also have to have some very um, deep understanding of the different technical relational and business things that we're trying to solve and I think that's that's the inspiring thing and that's what I think is I guess what makes me happy to keep doing this because there's more to learn every second and that's a great thing wow excellent Thank you very much, yeah. both of you, for, for taking thank the time you. to talk to us after. Thanks thank for you sharing your much. insights. And thanks for a great podcast, really. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. I'm, I'm going to have to go listen to some <laughs> now. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. thanks. Well, that was, that was four of the speakers um, from Interact London 2015. Mm -hmm. But um, you can also, if you haven't already, you can also go back to episode 112, um, where we have three other interviews from yeah. Interact London. And uh, get a taste of Steve Portugal's mindfulness that we talked a lot about with uh, Sophie and, and Maurice right now. Yeah, mm. um, exactly. Some of the, mm. the topics that we t did mention yeah. um, have been covered in both these episodes rather than just this episode. Mm. So if you haven't already listened to it, um, scroll back a little bit and listen to um, episode 112 in your podcast client as well. You can um, find us, as usual, pretty much everywhere as UX Podcast, um, including uxpodcast.com, where you'll find the um, show notes um, to this show um, and links to the presentations and videos. Um, of all the talks. Of all the talks. Right. They, yeah. they um, will be out now. Um, and, if, um, and, of course, all the other previous episodes, including mm -hmm. um, um, other events we've been to. Mm -hmm. And other interviews we've done. Yeah. But also, we love feedback. Do give us some feedback. You know, I mean, find us on Twitter and uh, tell us what you think about the shows and things you want to hear more about, mm. and stuff like that. Yeah. And we do our best mm. to reply. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not as quick as we'd like. Well, <laughs> then just keep tweeting us and we'll, <laughs> yeah, get, we'll, we'll get the message. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and if you've enjoyed it, then well, yeah, we're just happy. Mm. But we like to know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Alrighty then. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. <laughs>